Now, I do want to say that this changed quite a bit for my history of math. I still have an outline, of course, content schedule, but I'm not doing 28 learning outcomes. I have 10 learning outcomes in that class, but I have them being assessed with four projects. Welcome to the Grading Podcast, where we'll take a critical lens to the methods of assessing students' learning. From traditional grading to alternative methods of grading, we'll look at how grades impact our classrooms and our students' success. I'm Robert Bosley, a high school math teacher, instructional coach, intervention specialist, and instructional designer in the Los Angeles Unified School District and with Cal State LA. And I'm Sharona Krinsky, a math instructor at Cal State Los Angeles, faculty coach, and instructional designer. Whether you work in higher ed or K-12, whatever your discipline is, whether you are a teacher, a coach, or an administrator, this podcast is for you. Each week, you will get the practical, detailed information you need to be able to actually implement effective grading practices in your class and at your institution. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Robert Bosley, one of your hosts, and with me as always, Sharona Krinsky. How are you doing today, Sharona? I'm doing really well. I had a great day because I got to do an all-day workshop on this stuff, so I'm kind of riding the alt-grading high. You might hear a little excitement in my voice. How about you? I'm doing good. This isn't our first new episode that's dropped of the year, but this is our first time recording of the new year, so happy new year. How was your holiday breaks and winter break? Well, I took more of a break than I normally do, which is good for me because normally I just go from one job to another job. So it was kind of nice to actually take some time where I was just kind of vegging out and not working on one job or another. And it's kind of exciting that we're in our second calendar year of the podcast. Like we made it this far. (laughs) So that's kind of exciting. How about your, your time over the break? Well, our big thing is, even though I live here in California, I'm originally from Oklahoma, and so is my wife, and most of our family is still back there. So we travel back home usually during the summer and as often as we can during the winter break as well. So it's always great being back there, but because there's five of us, we drive, and that is a very long drive. And you drive it. (laughs) basically without a break. And I can't understand that. Sometimes we do take breaks, but yeah, this time both going there and coming back. I mean, we took turns driving, but yeah, we, we didn't stop other than to eat and gas. So 21, 21 and a half hours getting there and 20 hours coming back. I have never driven that much at one time. Yeah. But luckily, we missed all this really bad weather that's hit that area now. So it was cold, but it was dry and no ice, no snow, because we've done that in the snow and ice, and it can be scary. Well, I'm glad you made it back safely. And And I'm I'm glad to be back here recording. Exactly. It's been kind of odd being this long out without recording a full episode. I mean, I know you've done one. You did one with Drew and... Steven, which I'm sorry I missed. It was a great episode. So this is my first one back in a while. So it's nice to be back. So we have to 
get our brain back in the groove. I know you've started back at the high school, but most of us university folks, at least those of us on semesters, have not yet started. Why don't you tell us what we're going to talk about today? So holding true to the theme that we were doing with our repeat episodes, where we were looking at things that we ourselves were possibly going to adjust for the spring in our college course, we're looking at calendaring on this episode. So what what do we mean by calendaring? Well, that's a great question because it, it comes up often when we do these trainings, which is how do we literally pack all of this stuff, meaning everything from teaching to assessing to feedback to reattempts, how do we pack it into our term? Uh, a lot of the language I'm going to use, I'm on a 15-week semester plus a one-week final exam. So a lot of my thoughts are centered around a 16-week time frame. But in general, how do we do all this stuff literally day by day by day within the term? Would you add anything yeah, whatever, to that? Well, and like you were alluding to, the term might be very different for different people in different settings. Um, you said at, at your Cal State job, it's 16 weeks, although one of those is a finals week. Um, technically, my high school is supposed to be 20 weeks, but it's actually like 18 in the fall and 22 in the spring. Well, and then so my older son is currently on a winter intercession. Those are three-week classes, and you have summer classes. Yeah, and, and quarter systems. So whatever your term is, whatever length of time, how do you get everything that you have to get done in a reasonable, feasible way. Because yeah, you can't do this on the fly. This is something you should always be planned out, but especially with any kind of alternative grading or even really just anything that's not just pure lecturing, you really have to plan this out and be intentional with how you're planning and and calendaring your, your activities and your assessments and everything else. And the way I look at it is a combination of backwards design and the four pillars. So going back to the four pillars really quick, we have these four pillars. You have clearly defined learning outcomes, helpful feedback, marks indicating progress and reattempts without penalty. And there's two pieces to that that really hit your calendar, which is the feedback loop and the reattempts. I thought I might want to start, we could walk people through how we do this, starting from the end and some of the philosophies between how we do it and then maybe challenge some of those philosophies. Sounds good. So the first thing that I do when I look at the backwards design, so let's assume I have my clearly defined learning outcomes and let's assume- Which Which is the first start. That's not what this episode is about, but all of this comes after that is done. And by the way, you might change them as you go through the calendaring. Because one of the first things you're going to look at is you're going to go, okay, I have 30 learning outcomes and I'm I'm in a 15-week semester. I'm in a 10-week quarter. I'm in a three-week intercession. How do I do 30 learning outcomes? So this may affect your learning outcomes. Absolutely. But when I design my courses, the first decision that I think about is philosophically, if I'm expecting students to get to a certain level of expertise, how much time do they need to do that? If it's anything more than a week, I cannot be putting new content past week 14. 
I can't do it. Yep. And if they need reattempts, I may not be able to do it past week 13 or past week 12. So I philosophically front load my content. I go a little bit faster on new introductions and I start assessing in week three or week four, but I backload some of my assessments. Yeah. How about you? You know, similar and it greatly depends on the course that I'm teaching. So with something like, if I'm doing one of my high school classes, let's say algebra two, if the new content really is an extension of something that I've already done, that does allow me to go a little bit further into the semester. But if it's like you were saying, if it's something that is completely new, yeah, you have to give yourself enough time to teach, assess, and, and reteach. So kind of that same idea of looking at what material and when do I really need to end. Well, and there's a big difference between what you're doing in the high school and what we're doing in the university, which is... Well, my term, even though we have two semesters, my term is year-long. So I do have more of a time to complete it. But at the same time, if I'm looking at the fall semester, I'm not wanting to introduce things after Thanksgiving with like two weeks left to go. Well, not Um, anything that you're going to actually grade during the fall, but you could introduce something that the grading, the assessment will happen early in the spring. There's no reason you can't teach that, right? Or I don't like to do that though. Um, Just because I, I do believe the assessment is part of the learning process and we end up losing so much between the break. It, it almost after years of teaching, I've learned, I really don't like to do that because it ends up being kind of a, I don't want to say a waste of time, but you don't get a lot of bang for your buck out of that time when you're doing it. So if it's not something that I can truly assess and give feedback and reassess I don't want to do it, even though I could, like you said, teach it and then assess in the spring. I, I really don't like doing that because assessment is really where I think the learning starts to cement, especially with the way we do it with multiple attempts and things like that. And the other thing that's coming to mind, so there's two things that come to mind when I get asked about that, because we all feel so pressed for time. So one thing that comes up is there is some stuff I do that I want to do. Because by the time I get to week 15, if I've had a successful course, I have a very engaged group of students. So I might do some things that I'm not assessing. Could be application problems. In my linear algebra, we look into how Google does page ranking or how they did it when they started. It's a very cool application problem. It helps the students with content we have just learned. But I'm not teaching new content. I'm still using class time on something incredibly valuable. Exactly. But I'm not introducing new material. And then yeah, and that's what Stephen was talking about in our last episode as, as well, right? Teaching these, doing these really intense application things that isn't necessarily going to be assessed, but it's going to firm up and really cement a lot of the things that had been assessed. And they're just fun, in-debt, engaging, real-life application of what you've been trying to teach throughout the semester. Exactly. And then the other thing that I hear people 
talk about is this is a great time to really load up on your, some of your alternative assessments. So project presentations, group presentations, reassessment carnivals. These all can happen in those last couple of weeks. Working in teams in the classroom to solidify learning and prepare, especially if you have maybe a common final exam, like I've heard the ACS, the American Chemical Society. Maybe you're doing cram prep for a mandatory common final that you don't have control over. There's a lot of ways to use those last couple of weeks that are all about solidifying learning and not new content. Exactly. So that's the first thing I do. I front load my content, I back load assessment, and then I really do think about what am I assessing in those last few weeks? How am I assessing? Do I have a project I need time for? Do my students need time to complete revisions on a project? What is the final exam for? So my statistics class and my linear algebra, the final exam is umpteen gajillion individual little checkpoints that are the last chance they have to reattempt. But my history of math, they're trying to finish their projects. Mm -hmm. And what about you? I mean, you did this with your statistics the follow-on semester. And again, my statistics class at the high school level, and when I was doing this with Algebra 2, it was definitely a little bit different. You were just saying in your college statistics and your linear algebra, it's all these little checkpoints that are just the final, the last attempt. But your students don't all have to take those, do they? Not for those two classes. I don't have exactly. a mandatory it's final. The, if they've already got it, uh, they've already got mastery of that learning target, they're not taking it. And some students do end up not having to take any of them. At the high school level, I don't have that option. I, I can't just let my students <laughs> out of my classroom two hours early during finals because they, they don't have anything final to do. So I have to do mine a little bit different with the statistics class and the projects because I was doing my first attempt at specs grading. So the class was set up a little bit different, which made that easier to do. The last time I did this with an Algebra 2, I did have to get a little bit more creative with that time. But yeah, it goes back again to what are you doing in the course and the purpose of the course and your setting and your setting requirements because we all have slightly different ones in our different settings. And also that's the one time of the semester I don't give feedback. There is no feedback loop on that final turn in, but I still need to plan for enough grading time that I can complete everything before my grades are due. So I am looking at that calendar as well. Then the next step that I take from there is I look at the total number of standards. I map out when I think I can teach them. And then I start putting in the assessments in. So I'm gonna try to bounce back and forth between the end of the class and the beginning of the class. And I'm gonna include three things as I think about it. How much time do I need between when I teach it and when I start assessing it? Mm -hmm. How much time do I need to do the feedback loop from me back to them? And then how much time do they need with the feedback before they attempt it again? And so I'm going to really try to look at that entire loop cycle. So typically the way I view it again with my content in a standards-based course is I teach it one week. 
I start to assess it the next week and I do two rapid attempts a week apart. So if I'm teaching it on Monday, Wednesday of week, let's call it one of the cycle, they get their first attempt at it at the end of week two, I have to grade it and return it. So I have to provide the feedback and the mark by the next class session. So that's the beginning of week three of the cycle. And then they attempt it again at the end of week three. I then give myself one week in between attempts one and two. So I have a little more feedback time and a little more time for them to absorb it because if they're still not getting it, they might need an intervention. So I've assessed in week two, I've assessed in week three, I skip week four and I give a third attempt in week five of a cycle. It's not week five of the semester, but week five of a cycle starting with the day I taught it. And then depending on the course, if I have a fourth attempt, that might come in week six. So my structure, it takes approximately six weeks from the time I teach it till the time the fourth attempt is done. Now, that doesn't mean that you're spending six weeks on just this one topic, does it? No. So if I teach standard one in week one and I start assessing it in week two, I might start standard two also in week one or I might start standard two in week two. So those six-week cycles are going to overlap. So by the time I get to week six, I've probably six or seven or eight standards into the end and I have multiple cycles going. Push and pull of pushing the new material forward while we're still pulling the feedback loops and the relearning from the old learning target. So yeah, I don't want someone to hear, oh, you spend six weeks on one topic. Wow, you must only have three or four topics and then that's it. No. (laughs) Right. So this came up today in the workshop. People asked me, how do you do 24 linear algebra learning outcomes in a 15-week semester? So I pulled up my calendar and I looked it up and I said, okay, what does it look like? So I looked at my, I outlined my whole calendar, right? And the first week that I start, I usually don't start teaching content really in the first week of the semester. I do a huge amount of team building. I might do some preparation, like getting them used to and ready for the math. But in week two of my linear algebra class, I teach three of those 23 content learning outcomes. And then in week three of the semester, I test all three of them for the first time. And during that week three, I'm getting standards four and possibly five. So by the end of week three, I've taught five and assessed three. So I'm starting to assess much, much earlier. I'm not waiting for week six for the first big exam or week eight. I am literally assessing for the grade starting in week three. And that means that by week nine, I am checking six different learning outcomes at different stages. One of them's on a first check. Three of them are on a second check. Two of them are on a third check. Yeah. I also don't hold students up. I was asked about the snowball effect. What if they don't get it and they have to wait and stay on that standard while we're continuing to move on? I don't make them wait. They keep checking. They keep going. They may have to, I sort of view it like they're continuing to roll along and they might have a scoop coming behind them trying to pick up the stuff that's dropping, the stuff that they are not getting. 
And part of that is because they may not get it until they have to use it in the context of something more complicated. See, and, and this is something, and, and I'm, I'm sure it's true with all subjects, but I've seen it so much more with STEM and, and especially math because our material does build on top of it. People think that the learning is also this kind of linear progression. And I, I love pushing back on that. I, I've got a specific story about I had a student several years ago that for whatever reason, just struggled with understanding linearity, just simple linear graphs, y equals mx plus b, just struggled with that, especially with the graphing. And yet when we hit exponentials, he got that and that made the linear make sense. So even though we teach, especially in math, a lot of things in a very sequential order, that doesn't mean the learning has to be. And that's exactly kind of what you were just saying. We, You don't hold them up. You don't, oh, you don't have A and B. You can't go to C because it might be C and D that makes <laughs> the A and B topics make sense. And even if you think that there is absolutely no way that they can get topic C without having understood A and B, you might be completely right. You still need them to start that feedback loop. You need them to realize that they need A and B. So they've got to try C. And you need to talk to them about this. It's not just like, hey, we're going to set them up to fail. We're like, no, we'll tell them we think you need A and B, but we want you to keep trying anyway. Exactly. Now, I do want to say that this changed quite a bit for my history of math. I still have an outline, of course, content schedule, but... I'm not doing 28 learning outcomes. I have 10 learning outcomes in that class, but I have them being assessed with four projects. So I don't start looking at the first project until week four, and they don't do the second project until week eight. So they're not quite as overlapped. Like I'm trying to get completely through project one before they have to turn in project two. So it's not quite the same way. Now, when we get to projects three and four, we're starting to run out of a little bit of time. So they have to do that a little bit more overlapped. But now, especially why early on. Are, why is there such a big difference between that class and the linear algebra class or the statistics class? It's because I decided to make a different type of a grading architecture. The history of math class, number one, it's an elective. Number two, it's not in a course sequence. So there's not a specific set of detailed content that they have to have. It's not like you need to understand this fact about Pythagoras. Instead, what I did when I designed my learning outcomes, they are very, very broad. Uh, they read, for example, one of them reads historical problems. I can connect historical math problems to the context in which they were posed and solved. I don't care if they do that when we're studying the Greeks, when we're studying the Renaissance, when we're studying the 20th century. They have a lot of choice in how they assess that particular thing. They do it in the context of these projects, and these projects have many more things to them than just the historical problem learning outcome. 
they have a bunch of specifications. But what it really boils down to, you have a different, a very different grading architecture, but that's because the purpose of these courses are so very different. Exactly. And that is something that I wanted to really point out is your calendaring, just like your architecture, is going to be very different based on the type of class and the purpose of the class that you're teaching. So the example you gave of, of your linear algebra one, this is a math class that's in a sequence. There is knowledge there that is going to be used in, in courses beyond, which can be very different. Or even if we're doing a, a different type of subject where I'm thinking back to like some of Joe's learning targets that he's talked about, where you can assess those learning targets in lots of different ways, kind of like your history of math. So those calendaring, those reassessments look very different because they're not reassessments like what we are doing with the linear algebra or the statistics class. Exactly. So that's going to have a huge impact on the way you calendar this stuff out. Now, the other piece that I want to be careful to acknowledge is because we have built certain support tools, we have time shifted the majority of our assessments outside of class. We are confident in our ability to maintain mostly academic integrity and still do this time shift. That's not the case for a lot of people. So part of yeah. calendaring is actually your utilization of your in-class time. Or what other resources do you have? And we had a bunch of them come up today. Some people have access to a testing center, a proctored testing center. So they can utilize that. Another thing that we talked about is maybe the required attempts. Like if you require people to achieve a certain level on a proficiency scale twice, you might calendar the first two times in your class because everybody has to take those but you might calendar your reattempts for office hours or for someone else's class. Like they can go sit in someone else's classroom and take it in the back corner because you can proctor that way with a team member. They can come to another class of yours that you teach that's unrelated. Like if I'm teaching linear algebra, I can have a statistics student come to my class and take the assessment there. What are some of the other ways that you can think of that you need to do that kind of stuff? Or, or just with online testing, you know, whether it's in a testing center proctored or not. But it, it really comes down to utilizing the tools that you have available to optimize the time in your class. So one of the things that the pandemic forced me to do was transition my assessments completely online because all of our classes were. I mean, here in California, we were remote for a year and a half. The assessment part is actually something that I've not brought back into the classroom. I still do mine completely asynchronously online because it gave me so much more instructional minutes back where I can actually teach instead of using those instructional minutes to sit and watch them take a test for 40 minutes. And see, I was exactly where you were until this semester. So this semester, I brought back some of my assessments in 
because I figured out one of my best learning opportunities for students is happening actually while the test is happening because I am willing to engage with them even during the test. Now, not everybody's going to be comfortable with this, but I told my students, if you want me to look at your stuff before you press submit, I'll do it. I'll look at it. I'm not looking at it in detail, but I might look at it. And this is particularly in the statistics class where I can see it in linear algebra class. It doesn't work. I can look at something and say, I need you to go look at your answers to question five again. I think you're not remembering some of the things I said. Or, and I've had instances where they're like, I don't know how to answer question three. And I'll say, okay, read me the problem. Read me the scenario. They'll read the first sentence and they'll stop. And I'll say, keep going. So they'll read the second sentence and then they'll stop. And they're like, I don't know. I'm like, keep going. They will jump to the last sentence. <laughs> And the answer's in the third sentence, but they skip that and they go to the last one. I'm like, no, don't skip. Keep reading. And they'll read the third sentence and they'll go, oh. So I'm literally teaching them to close read. I haven't given them any information. All I did is read, keep reading, keep reading. No, 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 you skipped. Keep reading. That has helped my students a tremendous amount. And by the way, I'm doing it out loud. So other students are hearing me do this. And my students yeah, have started st staying because of it. It's, it's funny. And you know what? I remember being taught that as a kid. Like that was a testing strategy. You, you read the first couple of, like it was a quick read or a, a skimming testing strategy from decades ago. But yeah, it cracks me up how many of our students We'll still try to do that. And I don't know where it comes from, but it's like, no, no, well, go back, closely read. You're like all that stuff that your history and, and English teachers were trying to teach you in middle school and high school, go do it. Go do those close readings. <laughs> well, to be fair to these students, in order to do a word problem in math in a traditional setting, you need to start from the last sentence because you need to know what they're asking you before you can do the close read. Right, because you can do a close read and they're going to throw a number and a variable and another number and another variable and they're going to throw all this information at you, none of which makes any sense until you read the last sentence. So I can understand reading the last sentence to find out in most situations what they're asking you, but our questions are templated and our sample problems match our assessments so that what we're asking you is literally listed. Number one, what's the sample? You're going to need a close read. Number two, what's the population? So in statistics, we need to train them to read our assessment questions. So that's yeah. another calendaring impact. You got to do some sample problems in class, probably, somehow. I mean, I try to get by into the feedback loop on the first sample problem, as opposed to waiting yeah. for the first checkpoint. So what else goes right. into calendaring for you? Well, and it really does, like a big part of it for me is looking at and thinking about how I'm doing those reassessments. How am I assessing? How am I reassessing? That's probably after I get my learning targets and kind of look at where I need to end. That's the biggest part for me because that has a huge impact on calendaring. We gave the two very different examples of our statistics in your linear algebra 
compared to your history of math. And then I've worked a lot with Joe on some of his calendaring and stuff. And I've worked with teams of people from English and science. So really how you're going to assess and reassess is going to have a huge impact on that calendar. Because if it is true reassessments, like what we do, you've got to cram them in. You've got to have them in small enough blocks that you can get it all in, but large enough that they can get the feedback and do the relearning. Whereas if the reassessments aren't actual reassessments, they're different opportunities to show mastery of a learning target that might be going from doing it in, I don't know, pre-industrial era of American history versus the industrialization. Something like that where it does have a huge impact. So that's my next part is I look at those and what impact that's going to have on my calendaring. And this is where you might end up making major changes to your learning outcomes. So for example, I was speaking to a computer science instructor today who has done this in his lower division, but he's having trouble with the upper division because the programs are so much bigger. They take so much longer to grade He's like, it might take me five or six hours to grade a program of 200 lines. How the heck am I going to reassess this? So I was asking him, well, what are you grading? Because I'm like, how are you doing it now? He's like, I'm doing it traditionally. I'm like, okay, what are you scoring? And he's giving me some examples. And he says, well, for example, I might score, what did he call it? Mechanical cues or something like that. And I said, okay, well, what is that thing? Does that come up again in other in other programs. He's like, no, we only do it in this one. I'm like, okay, is there anything else? What is that thing? What is a mechanical cue? I said, is it an algorithmic tool? He says, well, yeah, it's an algorithmic tool. I'm like, okay, do they have to have mechanical cues to pass the class or do they need to show mastery of a bucket of algorithmic tools? So maybe your learning outcome is not actually machine cues or mechanical cues or whatever the heck he said it was. I, I don't remember now. Is it algorithmic tools? So is your learning outcome a little bit broader than you thought it was? Yep. And then you have to show it on six out of eight tasks or projects or programs or whatever it is to get that component of the class completed or all of them or whatever. You don't have to reattempt the exact same skill, but you do have to allow a reattempt on the outcome, the learning outcome. Yeah. And, and that's where, at least in my experience, especially working in my K-12 world, where the people I'm working with are wanting to take every skill and turn that into a learning outcome. And then you end up with 45 learning outcomes. I'm like, no, 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 no. Every daily lesson outcome is not a learning target that you want to assess and put in your grading architecture. Whether it's combining those into a broader learning target or like you were saying, team them into a a group. But, and it's funny, in our earlier episodes, when we talk about especially the grading architecture, We do present that in a linear fashion, and you do need to at least start thinking about it in a linear fashion. 
but then you end up circling back and making revisions. And it's usually during the calendaring that people realize either A, I've got way too many learning targets or B, I've made my grading architecture too complex or too demanding. There's no way anyone's going to have finished this because I can't get the feedback fast enough for them to do it. Exactly. And there's two things I want to follow up on for that. So hopefully I'll remember both of them. The first one is what you just said about cycling back. I've started to use the analogy of the scientific inquiry cycle, which is the newer model than the scientific method that we learned in the 1970s in school. Yes, I'm dating myself. But when we first learned the scientific method, it was very linear. And they don't Mm -hmm. teach that anymore. They now teach the science inquiry cycle, which is not only a cycle, but it has a middle and you can jump in and out of the middle into every spot on the cycle. So I feel like there is a course redesign cycle that yes, you wanna go around the path once and then you're gonna keep cutting through the middle from point to point to point as you do your redesign. So that's the one thing I wanted to say. And the second thing is I wanna clarify the word reattempt because this is in our pillar. So this is a fundamental concept of reattempts without penalty. What we are reattempting is to show evidence of learning of a learning outcome. We are not necessarily reattempting a specific quiz a specific problem, a specific piece of evidence. We are reattempting demonstrating evidence of learning. So that could mean having students revise a piece of work. That is what we would call a reattempt. They are attempting again to show you the instructor evidence of learning because they didn't do enough of it the first time. Or they can attempt a new problem or they can attempt a different problem that gets you to the same learning outcome. For example, in my calculus courses, I have strategy for integration as one of my learning outcomes. This is where I wanna know, can you pick the most efficient or the easiest advanced integration technique to do the problem and can you set it up? I don't necessarily need you to always do it on a problem that's just strategy for integration because later on I might have a motion in space vector calculus problem that you need to do the whole problem to get that learning outcome. But as part of it, you're going to have to set up and solve an integral. Yep. And I can take that evidence and use it. Yeah. Or, and the fourth option is like what you do with your history class, your history of math class, where they're showing you understanding of a learning target through two different, very different lenses, whether they're either trying to do it with the ancient Greeks or they're trying to do it in the Renaissance. So that's another way of, so you kind of have four different pathways to take. And again, which pathway you do, there's no right or wrong one. All four of them are valid. All four of them could be used in different settings. And it really boils down to going back to the type of learning targets you have and the purpose of your class. But whichever one of those you do does have huge impacts on your calendaring. Exactly. A couple of the the moments that some of the people I was working with today had is number one, by doing this calendar and by forcing ourselves to think this through, this actually becomes more transparent to the students. 
Like when they look at the calendar and they're like, well, why am I doing this thing? You're like, because this is the second or third time that I need you to try to show me that you've learned this piece of whatever. And the students can go, oh, I get it. I need to learn this thing and show you that I know it. So what happens is the students start to talk to you. What's enough? How do I show you I've learned this? I don't think I've learned this. Can we talk about it? I don't understand why I didn't get it on this. When am I going to have another chance? So the calendar itself and this feedback cycle process reinforces the incentivization, incentivizing of actually learning the content, which is pretty darn cool. Yeah. And again, I, I've said this, I've said it a hundred times and I'll probably say it a thousand more by the time we end up ending this podcast, which hopefully won't be for a while, but those conversations are what sold me having those conversations with my students at the end of the semester about math instead of about chasing points is why I stuck with this despite how bad it was the first time and I've never even thought about going back. And I have made the calendaring mistakes. I have walked oh, around yeah. the week before the semester ends with a stack of single page quizzes that's four inches, like an entire ream of paper, and thought to myself, yeah. how am I going to even check 500 reattempt quizzes? Because here's the other things. It's reattempts without penalty. It is not reattempts without limit. Yes, and we've talked about this. One of those like three big mistakes especially new practitioners will make is drowning themselves, especially at the end of the term, having just an avalanche of, of assessments to grade, whether they're assessments or reassessments or revisions. So really paying attention to your calendaring to make sure that you don't absolutely bury yourself in an avalanche of papers to grade is extremely important. And the reality is you're not actually helping your students. I've had people who've bought into this idea that, you know, why are we putting artificial limits on students showing us what they know? It's for two reasons. Number one, students need time to get feedback and learn from it. This constant throwing of spaghetti against the wall doesn't actually help them learn and it may create some bad habits. And yeah. number two, you need to have boundaries and limits as an instructor or you're going to fall apart. It's kind of that put the oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on the baby. We want to help all of our students and we can't if we break down. I also want to clarify one other thing. When I say not uh, without limit, I mean for things that you have to touch as an instructor. So the question came up today, does that mean we should change the number of attempts in my open math, which defaults to a hundred? I'm like, no, it's totally fine for them to have 100 attempts on an auto-graded thing. If the computer's doing the grading for you and that's enough on whatever it is, homework or even on quizzes or whatever, let the computer do that. I give an example again. I was helping my younger son with his physics class with this god-awful mechanics roller coaster problem. He gave up after attempt eight. I finally got it right on attempt 42. Oh, God. <laughs> and he looked at me, said, Mom, oh, my God, you never give up. And I'm like, well, but every one of those, I had to go back. All it said is, nope, you're wrong. 
And I'd go back and look at it and look at it again. And what did I forget? It, it took me 42 times before I had learned enough. Because I'm sorry, my physics is atrocious. Sorry, Dad, if you're listening to this, you're probably not. It's atrocious. It took me 42 attempts. Now, this was not mastery attempts. This was homework. But I'm telling you, that's what I needed to learn this content. So if you can do that, yeah, but, okay. Yeah, and but speaking of auto-graded things, that is utilizing your tools to their maximum efficiency and effectiveness is another very important thing, both with just alternative grading and with calendaring and making sure students have, are having opportunities to learn without absolutely killing yourself doing it. Utilizing the tools, whether it's some sort of auto homework grader or anything else, really, we couldn't do what we do, especially in the statistics or the linear algebra class. We couldn't do what we do without checking. We couldn't do what we do without Canvas. We utilize these tools. And if you're not utilizing um, the tools that you have available, you really are doing yourself a lot of disservice. And that's a way to capture time in your calendar too, is maybe their first yep. attempt is done by using an auto-graded system where they just have to try to get it right. And if they can't get it right, then they upload some work and you provide feedback on that, but they get lots of chances. And then the second time that they validate it is through a more handwritten or hand-graded assessment of some sort. So you can get creative. You don't have to show it twice the same way. Yeah. And honestly, with the last time I did my Algebra 2 class, my first two units, which are traditionally these review things, and yeah, I had a couple of learning targets that I borrowed from Algebra 1. I didn't do any of that in my class. That was all utilizing my tools like Khan Academy, like Desmos. That was all asynchronous and outside of class and part of my kind of flipped classroom. So yeah, I had three learning targets that I never even taught anything about because they were Algebra 1 learning targets that were going to come back up a lot in Algebra 2. I saved myself because before I started utilizing a lot of these tools, and I think most, you know, especially middle school and high school teachers would agree, that's usually the first two weeks of your fall semester is reviewing stuff that they were supposed to have learned last time that you know that they've probably lost over the summer because they haven't used it. I steal those two weeks back for me and for my students' instruction of new material. And I'm also thinking back to our episode with Dr. Eden Tanner, who teaches a 170-person Gen Chem class. She has to auto-grade. Her stuff is all yeah. multiple choice. She's like, I can't do this without it. But they have infinite attempts or they have different things. So if you want to reach out to her, you can reach out to us and, and we can put you in touch with her. There are some very real realities that are based on our personal institutional contexts. And if you have a 170 person class, no, you're not going to be able to do it the way I do it in a 25 person statistics class. It, yeah. It's just not going to work. So again, what do we mean? We want multiple opportunities to show that it's for a student to show that they learned the content. That's the key. How it looks then, like is very situation dependent. And then I, I did want to bring up one other thing. And I know we're starting to get close to that time, but 
it's interesting that we're talking about calendaring now because I'm working with a, not a new teacher, but a, a new person to alternative grading. He went through my training last semester and we're starting to work together this semester to prepare for next fall. And we're starting to look at calendaring stuff. And he's like, okay, this is going to force me to be such a more organized and with it teacher because we're looking at this and we're actually planning this out. It's like, and I'll admit to this, I've done this several times, especially when I was a, a newer teacher in math, where I got to at the end of the year is where I got to. I might try to do the first four units in the book first semester and I might hit two and next time I might hit five, but no, calendaring this out and actually planning. He's like, this is making me more of an organized teacher and more accountable to my students. And, you know, he's really enjoying going through this process and he's saying it's forcing him to be a better teacher. Exactly. So I'm excited. My calendaring mostly is starting to settle down. I'm probably in my third year of some of these courses in their current formats. But it always does change. There are always tweaks I'm going to make. When I run into problems in a semester, I try to make a note of it. But I'm excited to see what everyone does with this. I'm excited. Every time I go somewhere and someone says, I do this thing, I'm like, oh, let me make a note of this thing. So let's continue to steal those hubcaps steal these ideas, get the calendars. And I'm going to encourage anybody who's starting a course redesign for the fall to go look at the repositories. So if you go actually to the gradingconference.com and the resources tab, there are links to repositories for math, biology, physics, and chemistry. And I think we're going to be putting up a computer science one now. Even if it's not your discipline, go read some of those. Go take a look. What are other people doing? They might be doing this, they might not, but it's a great way to get ideas and share. So any last exactly. thoughts on this for you, Boz? No, I just, I, I love the point that you brought up and we'll make sure to, to link those sites in, in the show notes here. I did want to bring up one other quick thing. We are starting to get some feedback from some of our listeners, some even some pitched ideas. So we are going to be addressing those in the near future. But I wanted to encourage anyone listening to this, if you have what you think is an interesting tool or way that you do calendaring, please write in, share it, let us know about it so we can get it out and share it on the podcast as well. Because we do, if we grow together, we grow further and faster. So I, if you've got a great hubcat, put it out there so we can steal it. Exactly. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining us and continuing on this journey. Please share your thoughts and comments about this episode by commenting on this episode's page on our website, www.thecreatingpod.com. Or you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. If you would like to suggest a future topic for the show or would like to be considered as a potential guest for the show, please use the contact us form on our website. The Grading Podcast is created and produced by Robert Bosley, and Sharona Krinsky. The full transcript of this episode is available on our website. The views expressed here are those of the host and our guest. These views are not necessarily endorsed by the Cal State System or by the Los Angeles Unified School District.